This is Coda Radio, episode 423, recorded on July 16th, 2021. Hello, friend, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by our friends at a Cloud Guru. You know, they now have that Cloud Playground. Mm-hmm. Azure, AWS, and Google Cloud Sandboxes on ACG's credit card, not yours. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and recording for a limited time, it's our host from Florida, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello, Mr. Fisher. How you feeling? Is everything all boxed up? Are you like in reduced living mode right now? Not yet, but this weekend is going to be a hell of a weekend. Boxing up and yeah. <laughs> yep. I hate that. I hate packing so much. If I was like big money, I would probably hire somebody to pack for me. But you look at the cost of something like that, and I just can't justify it. It's it's crazy. I actually looked at it. I'm like, this is this is like spilling a drink on a MacBook a week. <laughs> yeah, that is that should be a unit of accounting, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, did you see Qualcomm this week was posting that they've got something in-house that's going to blow the pants off of the M1 and that they have plans to compete with Apple Silicon in PCs? Qualcomm's going to save us. They're going to save us from our six-color tyranny. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're going to come in here and they're going to come in with uh, chips that are going to save us by the end of 2021, maybe, you know, depending on delays, 2023. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. I just, I guess I'm getting kind of bitter or uh, cynical, maybe. That's the way to put it, bitter and cynical. I've lost the faith in Qualcomm. They've, They've done me wrong. I've... I've had some systems, I've had some phones that had Qualcomm chips in them. They were supposed to be screamers, and they just were pathetic. We'll see. Um, if they do it, I'm sure you'll get one, though. Uh, I have some um, consultation that I'm going to need from you later. I'm going to need you to walk me off of the ledge a little bit. Oh, boy. But before we get there, we should probably get to some feedback, because our discussion around Copilot provoked some emails. Yes. Veratunda thinks that Microsoft has finally figured out how to kill open source with uh, Copilot. He says, I was listening to Coder 422 and your musings over Copilot. He touched on the idea of licensing washing, but I don't know if you went far enough. And he links us to something that Software Conservancy wrote up. Veratunda goes on to say it discusses who is not in charge of open source and how responsibility can be advocated for a variety of reasons. And that the biggest threat to the GPL or any free software license is actually just the enforcement of it. For a licensed account, like a trademark, it has to be enforced rigorously. So the real threat from Copilot is not just copying GPL code by mistake, but that copying would be automated and wholesale and making it impossible to catch and impossible to enforce. Suddenly, you have thousands and thousands of products exploiting GPL code, but no resources available to enforce those violations. This is what has me worried. If you wanted to kill open source, you don't have to kill the GPL. You just have to nullify it. Call me a cynic, but I have to say I'm genuinely worried that Microsoft has finally figured out how to kill open source, not by extending or embracing it, though they seem to really heart Linux, but by making it irrelevant because no one can enforce the license to make sure the code remains free for everyone. You don't need to kill the kernel if you can break all the tools that surround it with impudence. It could be a dark future. I guess I have an even more... Sadly, cynical view. I think people are already ripping off the GPL left and right. Sure. Probably is happening quite a lot, right? Even if they're just uh, kind of using it to get ideas and then writing their own versions of it. It's probably happening, but this seems like it could be a whole new scale. 
Right. And so the idea here is that the just just the pure quantity, the pure scale of it would make enforcement like non-financially viable. I think so. And then if you can't enforce the GPL, it essentially becomes worthless. I mean, I don't know. I You know, I've never been a GPL hippie. I kind of... Like, I always wondered, if people who have GPL software, if you find out someone's using it and they're like a rinky-dink, you know, they don't have any resources, whatever, what are you really going to do about that? Especially if you're a small shop. Right. If like a Microsoft is using your stuff, well, then you probably want to negotiate a license, get some money. But <laughs> Right. But if if you're a small shop and another small shop is using your code, like, are you even going to bother with the lawyer fees on that one? I don't know. Well, what if it's like an independent developer, like one guy or one gal? Right. You'd basically be choosing to wreck them. But of course, they are choosing to violate the license. That's a tough call. It doesn't feel like there's a good answer there. Well, it doesn't feel like you'll make a return either. Right. Alexander writes in, he's disappointed in Copilot for a whole number of reasons. After listening to the episode, he said he wanted to share his two cents. He says, I'm a professional software developer, but I think I have a biased view, probably because of my experience. But I am disappointed in GitHub, Alexander writes. And here's a number of reasons. Number one, it has learned to code by observing code in open source projects. You know, the code that's probably full of bugs and security vulnerabilities already, but Copilot doesn't know that. So it's just going to suggest happily a buggy implementation. Number two, what about dependency management? Let's say one tries to use Copilot for Python web development. Now, imagine that project solves two tasks, which are typically solved by two different web frameworks. Under a normal circumstance, you choose a single framework and use it for both tasks. But I suspect that Copilot will produce code using two different frameworks, which won't play well together at all. And then there's that licensing thing. Number three, Copilot does not attribute the produced code. So one may just unknowingly include code from, say, OpenJDK. And I'm sure Oracle will be so understanding about that. And number four, and he says this is probably my most biased point, but Copilot actually tackles the most interesting and creative part of software development. Why not have it focus on code review instead? It'll be helpful to have a bot that finds code smells, inefficient implementations, and a lack of test coverage for extreme cases. Why not invent tools to automatically create reproducers from users' bug reports? You know, like a bot that tries to find the best minimal number of steps to reproduce a bug. That, that would be invaluable. Why not tackle automatic issue triaging? Summing it all up, surely professional developers are not going to use this in an existing project. Surely the non-professional developers won't use this in a new project. And hobbyist developers, well, you're going to find them just constantly reviewing code instead of writing it. And for newbie developers, well, absolutely not. You just entered the field. Having a tool that produces a stream of bugs that you'll spend days trying to figure out is unhelpful, and it's even demotivating. There has to be something different out there, and Copilot still requires developer input. So I think it's not a good product. It's a good scientific experiment in machine learning, and I suppose it's that, but it's not a product. I'm afraid it's yet another instance of we built it because we can, but we didn't think if we should. Thanks and sorry for the rant, Alexander. I'm just having a hard time getting my hackles up about this co-pilot thing. Some people definitely are, though. Yeah. You know, they're upset. Yeah, it's interesting. It is to me um, because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take the input from the audience and be like, okay, is this is this a big concern? And I think they're starting to turn my opinion, but I'm still not super riled up about it. Okay, so so what is turning your opinion from last week? That's probably a great way to take this. Well, I really liked what Alexander just said there. Like, wouldn't it have been so much more useful if it was doing code review 
or if it could help automate reproducing user bug reports, imagine how actually useful that would be for just about all developers. Yeah, but that's a that's a harder sell. Code, code review, you know, often includes things like style and following, you know, whatever the internal, um, you know, methodology at your organization. How would you ever get code? How could a code pilot do that in a generic way? Yeah, it'd have to be tuned for each. Yeah, you're right. That would be tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think they are starting to convince me, though, that it's it's sort of a misconceived science experiment and not so much a product. That's sort of where I'm shifting there. Um, and I do kind of see Veritunda's point about potentially enabling license washing at like a massive scale. And that that seems like that could be an issue. But that's one of those that we just won't know if it's a real problem until we're a year down the road. I mean, I just feel like this is one of these things that's going to get a lot of hype. But in reality, it's not going to be used by like serious people very much at all. Yeah, yeah, or it's the future of programming. <laughs> or that, yes, or that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, Chuck wrote in about uh, solving sleepless nights, which is something that you and I have been struggling with recently. Oh, yes. And uh, just, ha- just had a little bit last night. It says, regarding your insomnia, I have a strategy that has been working for me lately. My uh, Pebble Classic Misfit sleep and deep sleep numbers tell me that I'm getting about, you know, six hours on average some nights it's bad. It's like two hours. And I try to get all that in one block. And recently I've been waking up after three or four hours. I'm just up. What happens is I'm wide awake and I have trouble getting back to sleep. Yep. Yep. So he he found this YouTube channel called Direction Phil. I, I'm saying it wrong, but I'll have a link in the show notes. And but the here's the idea. It's a military naval historian that just speaks in a really monotone tone the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's he says the key is, and I completely agree with Chuck here, the key is to get in a, on a topic that, you know, you're kind of interested in, but has nothing to do with your work or life. So it doesn't trigger like any stressors, doesn't make you think about things you got to do. And it's complicated enough that it keeps your attention. But you can also just sort of drift out and listen to it again and again and again. He says maybe you might be into lectures or something like that. Uh, you know, like stuff like Galileo orbiting Jupiter. He says you go find the lecture you like on YouTube and then use YouTube DL to download it as an MP3 or something like that and throw it on your phone. Yo, ho, ho, a pirate's life for me. <laughs> this is what I use Audible for. The, just this morning, I woke up at three o'clock, which I'm sure you can hear in my voice, audience. Band problems. We need to have a special like stinger jingle for it. Groups for old, for you know, online support group for old men or men that are becoming old men and, and then having the existential crisis that they're realizing they're getting older. That's the support group I need right now. The problem is more the realization, right? Right. Because I told my mom, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm starting to realize like getting older sucks. And my mom looked at me and she's like, oh, child, you are so young still. You have no idea. And and I'm like, yes, I realize I, I hopefully, hopefully still have a while, a ways to go. But it is no doubt in my mind that I have come to the point where I'm realizing, oh, I am getting older and things are changing. And I think like my eyesight's changing. Obviously, a lot of other things have changed. And it's just it's sleep is one of them. And so I I have tried to employ this uh, with Audible where I'll try to get a book that it keeps my interest enough, but not so much that I can't fall asleep. It's a tricky line to walk. I like the idea of adding YouTube to the mix. Something else that I've done, which I don't think is good, but just makes me feel like I'm in control a little bit is I'll just get up and work. And I know I shouldn't, but honestly, it, at least then I'm productive with that time. And as you know, no one's up, right? So it's quiet. 
it's surprisingly a productive amount of time. But the issue is, is that I'm just wrecked for like the next two days. <laughs> I really, it takes me a while to bounce back now, you know? That's what I'm going through right now. I'm, I was like, I was up at three o'clock or it was three 30 actually. So I, you know, I got up, I couldn't get back to sleep and I had a choice. I have a, a bottle of Z-Quil, but now that's late enough that if you take the Z-Quil, which for those who don't know, it's like NyQuil without the medicine part, it's just sleeping, whatever. You're going to be like, there's no hangover, hangover like a NyQuil hangover. It's, it's terrible. You're going to be so groggy. Yeah, you got to take that like 8, 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> that's what you 8, 9 do. o'clock, 7.30 maximum. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, but, that's probably for safe. <laughs> so then staring at me is my MacBook Air. And it's like, you don't, you do have a bunch of Python to write. I was like, oh, God. So there I went. Yeah, yeah, that's that's sort of been my, it's like there's a lot of people that are waiting for responses from me. There's things that are like for this road trip that are coming up that are pending until I can get to them. And every time we get to a phase in the planning for this road trip where something is waiting on me, it stresses me out because I've got like two weeks or so before I'm leaving and there's just not enough time and and we're going to have swag on the road trip and we're going to have a website that goes live and we have a live tracker and we have people that are joining us at the meetup. We have like special guests that are coming in and we're getting like their flights taken care of and all of this stuff. Right. And at each kind of major phase, something gets held up on me waiting and I, I legitimately can't respond to the stuff and answer the stuff while I'm recording, which happens like five times a week. So like, it's tricky. It really is. And so when I'm up late, sometimes I just bang out a whole bunch of emails. I'll just do a whole bunch of emails or I'll work on the website that we need for the road trip. I'll just do something like that, that I just never get un- uninterrupted time for. And I'm not always going to employ this strategy, but while I'm busy and things are on my mind, I'm just going to use the time for that. But I really like the suggestion, Chuck. I like the idea of that uh, military history YouTube channel. I will throw a link to that in the show notes because uh, I went over to that channel this morning and checked it out, and I like it. I think, you know, that stuff's kind of uh, kind of cool. And he included a link to um, a naval ship that was built here in the Seattle area way back forever. So it's kind of, kind of neat. Very cool. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. We have two meetups, Salt Lake City on August 7th and in Denver on August 20th. There's going to be swag and goodies, and uh, some of your favorite JB members will be at some of these events. We'd love to see you. I'll also have a tracker at colonytracker.live. That's colonytracker.live. When that's all up and going, that little uh, tracker page will have a meetup link on there and stuff. If you want to do a micro meetup with us along the way, that's something we'll be doing too. The whole idea really for this road trip was there's been no events for a long time. The last event I went to was Texas Cyber Summit, which was a stinker. And I really wanted to just get out there and say hi to people again and recapture what is really out there in the real world because we just live this very skewed reality online all the time between what you see on YouTube and social media and just chat rooms and whatnot. It's sort of a skewed version of reality and getting out there and seeing the audience again sort of resets my brain, you know, makes me makes me realize that it's not the end of the world because of the M1 and then additionally, it's really about getting to see some of our team members that we haven't got to see since Jupiter Broadcasting went independent. So it's a big colony reunion, and uh, we'll have more details soon. But meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting is where you go to uh, get the details about the meetups that are coming up and uh, let us know if you can make it. And let's thank Linode, linode.com slash coder. 
They are making this Colony Reunion road trip possible. They started in 2003 as one of the first companies in cloud computing because they were just geeking out about the technology that was landing in Linux. That's three years before the other enterprise providers. And they're still independently owned and founded on that love for Linux and contributing that back to the community. That's one of the reasons they're making the Jupiter Colony Reunion road trip possible with our meetups in Salt Lake City and Denver. All of that's powered by Linode. And everything that we've built since we've gone independent, we host that on Linode. And if we ever run into any trouble, or if you ever have any trouble, Linode comes with amazing, fantastic 24-7 customer phone support or ticket support if that's your preference. They'll help you. They'll get it settled, regardless if you have one Linode or you have a 100. They're going to take care of you. They also have hundreds of guides and tutorials to make sure you can get the best out of Linode. Anything you want to run in the cloud, anything that you can virtualize or run on a Linux box, you're going to have a great experience with Linode. They have super fast systems, great, great native SSD speeds, 40 gigabit connections coming into the different networks, 11 data centers worldwide. They own the links between their data centers. They are their own ISP. Their high-end CPU boxes have AMD Epic processors. They have blazing fast S3 compatible object storage, cloud firewalls, and simple one-click application deployments. All of it comes together to make Linode a truly best-of-class experience. When you want the highest performance and the best stability, when you want to give your customers or your users a fantastic experience, Linode. And Linode can also be part of your multi-cloud strategy. That can be a huge advantage for a lot of companies. Linode will snap in with your infrastructure management tools like Kubernetes and Terraform, make all of that just hum for you. That's why there's, there's so many routes and options you can go from a total newbie who's never built anything before to somebody who's deploying servers at scale. Linode can be a solution for you. They really managed to pull it off, but you got to see it to actually have it click. So I want you to go right now to linode.com slash coder. Get $100 in 60-day credit on your new account, and you support the show, and you can try out all this stuff I'm talking about and see what works for you. You're going to be really impressed with their interface to manage all of this, the capabilities, the speed, and if you ever do need it, the support. It really is the ultimate hosting package, and it gives me peace of mind knowing that my backend infrastructure for our listeners is running up on Linode. Linode.com slash coder. So Microsoft has announced Windows 365, which provides an instant on boot experience with cloud PCs managed fully by Microsoft. They say the instant access lets workers stream Windows with either a web browser or an application to their Mac, iPad, Linux machine, and Android devices. You pick up right where you left off because the state of your cloud PC always remains the same, even when you switch devices. They create a virtual PC for you in the cloud. You customize it how you like, with how much RAM, up to 16 gigs of RAM and up to 512 gigabytes of disk. And then those customizations persist. The interface, anything you tweak up there, persists. The company has built it on top of its Azure virtual desktop platform. So it can also snap in with any of the administration that your company might have with Azure and Azure Active Directory, i.e. when they create you an account now, they can automatically just provision you a virtual PC, standard by their image. Microsoft will be launching Windows 365 on August 2nd, 2021, to a business of any size. It is officially here, the Windows experience in the cloud, managed by Microsoft, designed to run on any device, even a web browser. I kind of think this is a great deal for Linux users. 
Yeah, I didn't think of it in terms of Linux users. I was thinking more in terms of the enterprise, but I'm curious, uh, what's the angle there? Well, imagine you got a self a guy like yourself, right? Where you got a Thaleo system, you've invested quite a bit in the Linux ecosystem and Linux hardware, but you have these jobs that come up that just require Windows. This now is your solution. You know, for some low monthly rate, you could have a couple of these virtual PCs up in the cloud that anyone on your team can log into with all of your development tools and your environment already set to good to go. And it remains there, ready for you to access at any point in time. All you need is a web browser. You want to do it from your iPad? Have at it, Haas. You know, you want to do it from your Thaleo desktop? Have at it. And it means you can just stay on Linux in this theoretical world. And when you do need Windows, you have it on demand now. Kind of like having the Mac Colo, only this is clearly a better solution. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that does make sense. I was thinking um, for enterprises that don't want to give people, particularly in the work from home world, like computers that have their data on it, give them one of these and then you can revoke it once the person's not with the company. That's probably got to be one of the biggest use cases. Work from home, secure PC. Or even temp contract employees. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I could see a lot of office spaces that don't even want to bother with um, any local physical hardware. I've seen a couple of companies in the last few years that have really no land to speak of. Um, I've even went into a company that doesn't even have Ethernet. They just have Wi-Fi and they have no file server. They have no domain controller. Everything is cloud-based. The users come to the office, they get on the Wi-Fi, and then all of their login stuff, everything is through the cloud. Interesting. Why not now? Why not the whole PC? Right. And I'm assuming you can roll back states with this so that you're not, you know... I would think, yeah. If some something bad happens, yeah. It seems like this was this was a long time coming. This was foretold by the ancients. Yeah, like it, this isn't a shocker, but it is I don't know, for some reason it still did kind of catch me by surprise, I would say. And I think a part of although not I guess in retrospect not too surprising is how hard they're leaning in on like the iPad and Linux angle on this. Like all of their official documentation and all of it talks about it. Like yeah, run Windows on your iPad. Burr, burr, burr. Like, is that is that a huge? Well, oh, Microsoft loves iPad. It just that seems like a weird. That seems like a weird thing to lean into in their announcement. Like, clearly, your use case that you just outlined, Windows shops that are just going to deploy virtual Windows, is going to by far be <laughs> the vast use case for this. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess it's I guess it's buzzworthy. I guess it gets headlines written. That must be part of it. Yeah, I don't know. I think this is still going to be pretty much an enterprise tool, but. I like it. Would you try it? Yeah, would I try it? Maybe. I mean, I I just took a look at shells.com, or I think it's just shells. Similar idea. They're pretty cool. They do uh, mostly Linux stuff. I don't know. I bought enough hard drive space that I can just dual boot, right? This is going to be a first-party managed experience, though, right? Like Microsoft, in theory, could... Oh, yeah, they could optimize. Right. And they're using RDP on the back end here, which is, I think, probably better than what you're going to see with Shells because Shells is using uh, Spice and then they're bringing that into the browser. And it's, it's good. It's a pretty good experience for what it is, but it's not as performant as RDP is. You seem, all right, yeah, you seem pretty hot on it. I mean, I, th- I think in the enterprise, this would be great, right? You need to give someone a PC and you want to control it. I've seen absolutely nothing wrong with it. Yeah. I, I Well, because you know what, for me, I've always felt like the best way to use Windows is in a virtual environment, in a contained space. It's not your primary desktop. You access it when you need it. If something goes wrong, you can revert a snapshot. Like even when I want to run a, if I've ever wanted to run a Windows server, I'd run it under virtualization. It's like an insurance policy for me. And 
I prefer this over on the on the bare metal. Well, and a, a good dev angle here too is testing on different Windows configs. Mm. So that that is definitely something I would look into. What do you think of the name Windows three sixty five? No, whatever. Three, you know, everything's got to be three sixty five now with them. I guess. Does that mean it's cloud now? Is that their thing? If it's three sixty five, it's the cloud version. Yeah, I think that's anything that's a service is three six five. I'm not using Windows on on Christmas. I'm not using Office on Christmas. So they can go. You're taking at least Christmas and Easter off. (laughs) (laughs) Would you use Would you use GNOME? Mm, Okay. All right. So it starts off reasonable. Okay, this has really gone around like a wildfire. I shouldn't say that, but it really has. Um, A GNOME developer has been doing a four part series about GNOME. His name is Tobias Bernard, and he's done part one, two, and three, and they didn't get a lot of attention. But then he did part four, where he talks about Gnome's values and its principles. I'm going to preface this. This is one developer. This doesn't necessarily represent the entire perspective of everyone involved in Gnome. However, it probably represents at least some of the widely held feelings and beliefs in the Gnome team. And I'll tell you... I read this and I, I just really had a bad feeling. So a couple of the points that, and I'll link to the full article, but a couple of the points that Tobias makes is he explains that Gnome's view is they must avoid user preferences and settings as much as possible because every preference has a cost in development time. I agree with that. That is true. Every preference adds complication. It adds another thing you have to test. I agree. And I think it's a reasonable design philosophy to try to reduce the amount of user preferences that have to be set. And he says they prefer to instead tackle the underlying problems that cause excessive options. The only thing, the only thing is, is with the GNOME project, it seems like this is taken to an extreme where it means there can be no user configuration options. Then he goes on to say, and this one I kind of strongly disagree with, the traditional desktop is dead. Yeah, I'm not sure I buy that at all. And I don't really agree with that because I think Apple and Windows are still selling quite well. Especially with what we just saw with COVID too, work from home, laptop sales spiked, right? I mean, I don't think it's dead. And it concerns me that a desktop maker thinks that. Um, But anyways, it goes on to say, system-wide theming is a broken idea. He suggests those who don't like the way an app looks on their desktop should stop theming and instead contribute to the app directly upstream. It's still always viable. And then that's, see that, that's the one that kind of irks me because most users can't like write Vala code or C sharp code or whatever, you know, language this particular application is written in. Yeah. And in particular, again, like I find it a reasonable argument that theming adds variability. It makes it hard for the developers to exactly expect and test what their app's going to look like on every system. I get that. It's a hard problem to solve. That being said, when you look at the commercial platforms, Windows, Mac, Android, iOS, Chrome OS, there is such a, a flip on the spectrum. Back when I first got into Linux in the late 90s, you could get resource fork editors for Mac OS and you could get theme packs for Mac OS. And Windows had a plus pack that included new themes and a way to tweak the UI. And there were companies like Stardock that would make cool tools to modify the way your PC looked. And then when these first smartphones came out, the ones that ran Windows CE and Palm, you could customize the crap out of those. 
You could customize the crap out of those UIs and put little widgets everywhere and up in the little toolbars and do all kinds of stuff. And now, in 2021, we have swung so far the other direction. User customizability and user control is essentially gone and instead replaced by standardization, standard controls, standard way of doing things. Reduction of settings is always a goal now. And there is a place in the market for that. That's fine. But I also feel like more than ever now, more than when I even started using Linux originally, there's also a place in the market for a desktop environment that does let you have some power and control and does let you customize it. And I would go on to argue that giving the user the ability to customize their theme and tweak their desktop, as silly as that sounds and as much of a headache as it is for developers, inspires people to tinker and become curious with their computers. And it's what creates the next generation of people who are building systems and tweaking systems because they can investigate, because they can explore their curiosity. They can open up the hood and they can play around with the engine. And I think that's probably more important today than it's ever been because it doesn't exist at all in the general market. And so for GNOME to come along and say, well, what we're, what we're going to do is we're going to lock everything down and we're going to make it just as bland and generic as all of the commercial platforms. Well, then what's the differentiator here? Because the market's already spoken. Chrome OS came out after GNOME Shell and has destroyed them in market share for other market reasons. But let's just be honest here. Like, who's your market? Who are you going for? And then the last one, Mike, the one that truly gets me angry, legitimately made me decide I am no longer ever using GNOME Shell. And it's such a damn disappointment, especially after the project specifically made outreach to extension developers to improve the extension experience, which we've talked about on this show. Tobias says, Shell extensions will always be a niche thing. Yeah, that one hit, hit below the belt. Rather than building GNOME extensions, Tobias thinks developers should instead make apps or perhaps contribute directly upstream to GNOME Shell. Again, with the contribute upstream, then you don't need the extension. As if the GNOME project would even accept your patch because they're notorious for rejecting things that don't match their ideology. And the bombastic statement of ridiculousness that GNOME Shell extensions are niche is the opposite. The opposite of reality. Gnome Shell with extensions is the vast majority of Gnome deployments, considering that Ubuntu, just the more recent versions of Ubuntu, have a two-fold install base over every other Gnome desktop, and it ships with a boatload of extensions by default, makes that statement ludicrous. Pop OS as well is in there. Pop OS. Even Fedora, dude. Even Fedora ships with an extension that puts their logo on the background in Gnome Shell. Literally every major implementation on every distribution that ships Gnome Shell has extensions turned on by default. And the developer says, oh, they're a niche thing. They're going to go away. If you want that functionality, if you want the Bitcoin price up in your toolbar, if you want your ping milliseconds up in the toolbar, submit that code upstream to Gnome Shell so that way we can reject it. Ludicrous, dude. Yeah, I think I think it's crazy that the solution to that would be submitting upstream. But again, he's entitled to his opinion. And obviously, you know, I don't know. I, the dream of... Uh, Gnome extensions was a great dream. I I do. I mean, it's well documented that, that you know I have some reservations about it, but I don't think the answer is everybody has to like fork Gnome and write in their own features. That's for damn sure, right? So it's interesting. It's it's sad. I I take it with a bit of salt because this is just one per one individual's opinion. But yeah, it's 
I, th- I think the problem is like he starts from the premise that the traditional desktop is dead. And so it gets really easy to make grand statements that are like just not true. Yeah. Because people people do like spend their day working on their desktop. And I, I know for myself, at least, whether I'm a Mac or Linux or what, I know how they each OS works and it works the way I want it. And I hate it when, like, you know, quote unquote, the vendor moves my cheese, right? Like something changes or they tell me I can't do something. Uh, in particular, on Mac, as they've been removing features, right? Uh, particularly in the area of customization. I don't know. I, this has been a recurring theme, the GNOME send extensions. I just, I don't know. I like system-wide theming. I like extensions. And I don't think the traditional desktop is dead. Not to, like, go through and cut them down point by point, but... I agree completely. I'll tell you the shift the shift I had after reading this was I had the sad realization that the Gnome project probably through, you know, just a culture of a project and and a group of people who share a common set of beliefs that you know they kind of they can create an echo chamber. And I truly to my core believe they're making a desktop for a user that does not exist. They're making a desktop for this theoretical, idealized new user who's going to come to Linux and wants this super simple, clean, get out of your way, just barely but works kind of environment that is minimal and very new user friendly. And it's it seems like an obvious approach on the surface because if you look at the computer market, you know, the people who use desktops, well, the the vast, vast, vast majority of computer users are that type of user. The vast, vast majority of users that will ever use a computer are the type of user that GNOME is building their perfect desktop for. But the reality is, that's always been the case for Linux. And the commercial platforms are already providing a solution to all of those users. And because of the market dynamics and work that, that have sold Chromebooks and continue to sell MacBooks and sell Dells and... Those are all going to continue to ship those platforms for a very, very long time. And those users will buy Chromebooks and Macs. That's the reality of it. The people who choose to use Linux are going to be more of engineer types. They're going to be people who want that flexibility and control over their workstation. They're going to be people who are intellectually curious about how the computer works. That's always going to be the user base for desktop Linux, engineers and admins. It's obvious on its face. You're going to, of course, have new users out there that are given a Linux box that's been pre-set up by an admin or a friend or a family member. That's always going to be a user out there. But these are not the people actively seeking out the Linux desktop and choosing and evaluating desktop environments. Those are more technical people, and they always will be. This is an engineer's operating system. Just what it is. You're either deploying it on a server to solve a problem, you're building a device, or if you're using it on the desktop, you know what the hell you're doing. And so this idea that they're targeting this desktop environment at this user who's never going to choose their product. And we have over 20 years of data to show us this. We have 20 and we are never going to catch up to where some of these commercial desktops are at when it comes to ecosystem integration. Because these users also have phones that tie into greater ecosystems. And Gnome Shell is just simply not in a position to offer any kind of competition to that. And again, so they're going to have to focus on a user who can live without that kind of stuff. This all just sounds obvious when it comes out of my mouth, and yet the GNOME project seems completely blinded by it. Instead, they're on this quest to actually alienate the existing user base they have today and shoot for a user 
that simply does not exist. It's madness, and it simply invalidates the GNOME desktop for me as a possible desktop of the future because I, I'm clearly not their target demographic. They don't think any of us, anyone listening to this show is their target demographic. They think this person that doesn't exist that they've made up in their minds is the target demographic. And so it's with that that I just simply cannot use GNOME Shell. I cannot recommend GNOME Shell. And like for you, like I'm, I'm, I've got to now start a campaign to convince you to try Plasma because it is a better experience. But how do I even get somebody to try it? Because all of the major distributions are using GNOME Shell and it's pathetic. You know how you get someone like me to try it? So my love of Pop! OS is pretty well documented, right? But there's a pitch me some other distro other than Ubuntu or Pop that by default comes with Plasma and is you know somehow tailored for what I do. I know it's, I've said it before. There's two things that have happened in recent history. Canonical could have chosen to go with Plasma and System76 could have chosen to go with Plasma when they created Pop. And in both cases, it would just came down to GTK is what we've been using. Gnome Shell is what we've been using. It's what we know. We'll just keep doing it. When you look at who contributes to Gnome Shell, it's 80% somewhere in that neighborhood, almost 90% Red Hat staff. <laughs> it's so clearly a Red Hat project that we all pretend like isn't a Red Hat project. Right. And, and it's Red Hat that's driving this. Uh, and I, I have a lot of respect for what they do. I think the team has done a lot of hard work. A lot of good, a lot of good development has come out of there. But it's just no longer for me. And I'm still going through the mourning process. I've like I've lost a friend. I just want to say, like, as we've been on the air, my work Slack is blowing up because we're recording during the day, and like, pe- they're debugging some problem. It doesn't really matter. But people are uh, all talking about how they've now customized their uh, GNOME terminals, and the couple people on Mac are like, "Well, how come we can't do transparencies and background images in our terminal?" They got to get iTerm. That's why. That's <laughs> why you got to get iTerm, right? It's like because <laughs> Apple decided that you can't have that. Didn't they used to? I could have sworn it used to. You used to. They actually took it out. Okay, just just like a small digression here. I was working on Windows the other day in a VM because I destroyed my Windows machine. And the Windows terminal is just, it's a a joy. As a a terminal emulator, right? It's it's awesome. Uh, I don't understand why I can't have that on Mac. Well, I mean, I know you're such an iTerm hater, but I tell you, I, I think Windows Terminal is heavily inspired by iTerm. iTerm. Isn't iTerm like not being updated anymore? No, it's updated. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know. I know. Yeah. You know, what, you, what I would I do if I were you is I'd have like one terminal that's the Mac terminal. That would be my x86 terminal. And then I'd have like one terminal that's like my M1 compatible terminal or something. Because, you know. I, I, I never, ever run the M1 terminal. Oh, really? It's all x86. <laughs> It's still that bad, huh? It's still a hot mess. Uh, well, it's. I mean, I'm doing a lot of like Pythony stuff, and it's just yeah, I got to compile like this. That's got a long tail. Mm. I actually renamed Terminal to Terminal M1, and I have another terminal that's you know just like a copy of it, but set to launch in Rosetta mode. That's you know Terminal. That's a Rosetta Terminal rather. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I don't know, man. <clears throat> After I read this, I had to sit with this gnome stuff. Made me sad. Yeah, but remember, nothing is forever, right? I just, I don't know. I mean, we're all rocking iPads, and my long guy just loves it when we record. Yeah, especially during the day. Yeah, I think um, because I'm really struggling to stay 
stay on the Linux desktop these days. Um, Plasma makes me happy, but it's not perfect, especially when I start getting to Wayland and multiple monitor setups with multiple refresh rates and one that's high DPI and one that's not, one that has HDR and one that doesn't. It's a real hodgepodge monitor setup I have right now, but I just simply can't afford to replace all of them. So it is what it is. And it's really a struggle bus these days to just use desktop Linux, especially when you have things like the M1 coming out and the M1X pending. You have um, Windows that seems to be getting better and better. I'm I'm never going to switch to it, but like the pressures really seem to be mounting against desktop Linux. And at the same time, you have the lead desktop project and one of their lead developers going on about how the desktop's dead and about how extensions are niche. And it's like, wow, could you be any more detached from reality? Like the people that have the future as desktop desktop Linux in their very hands seem delusional. Delusional. I like it. Seriously, they think that they think the traditional desktop is dead and they think extensions are niche, or at least Tobias does. In my opinion, that sounds delusional. Yeah, but again, it's just one dude. And I, I just don't see how anybody with a straight face could say traditional desktops are dead. They're not dead. People work on them every day, especially Linux people who are, you know, overwhelmingly right IT pros of some kind, whether developers or sysadmins or DBAs or whatever. I hope you're right. Audience, let me know what you think. Coder.show slash contact. Or you can weigh in on anything we've mentioned here or anything else you'd like. If you haven't joined our Coder QA team yet, CoderQA.co. We have a new Coderly that's getting recorded soon and released very soon. You get that and access to all the previous ones. You support the show. You get a limited ad feed. And that special bonus Coderly report. And that is all at CoderQA.co. Thanks to everybody who does support us. It means a lot. Mr. Dominic, is there anyone you want to send people anywhere? You want to send people? Maybe to your long guy? Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, you know what? Yeah, I've been a little, a little inactive on the socials, but follow me at Twitter at Dumanuko. I'll probably pick back up in a week or two. Yeah. Once, you know, you can always send us some moving pictures. People love that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so much fun. I'm at Chris LES. The network is at Jupiter Signal and the show at Coder Radio Show. Links to what we talked about today. Well, that's over coder.show slash four, two, three. You also find that contact form I mentioned, as well as our RSS feed and links to our back catalog and all of that. And head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get our live time so you can join us when the Coder Radio program is live. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of Coder Radio. See you right back here next week. <laughs>